Welcome to this week's episode of Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. I'm your host, Jack Llewellyn, and this week we have a guest. I've been promising a guest for a little while, and we finally do, and you're all very lucky. Not only do you not have to listen to me for the entire episode, but we get to talk to James Kirkendall, uh, who, as most of you know, was uh, the resident agent in charge of the Guadalajara office at the time of the Camarena abduction, and he was friends with uh, Agent Camarena, and frankly, and in my estimation, is uh, the one person alive who has the most information about this case, including yours truly, and I've learned a lot from uh, speaking with him uh, various times prior to today. So with that, Jaime, welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much for the invitation. Um, wanted to just kind of cover a couple of um, uh, maybe the big topics uh, at the beginning here, kind of just get them out, and then uh, we can uh, we can start talking about some of the the history and the the facts of the case. Um, tell me what you, if you would what your thought was when the Amazon Prime documentary, um, which I know some people use in, in air quotes, but when the last NARC came out, what kind of thoughts did, did that provoke in you? When I actually saw the, the, uh, the, 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 the documentary, it's not really a documentary, when I actually saw the show, I couldn't believe that anyone would uh, actually... I couldn't believe that that something like that some someone like like Amazon Studios would produce a show like that 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 had obviously not been investigated. Uh, I shouldn't say fully at all. Apparently, uh, there's so much there's so many fabrications and falsifications in the show. I just couldn't believe it, and I couldn't I couldn't believe anyone would say uh, make the allegations that they had made against. Uh, and then against against uh, so many competent and uh, accomplished uh, investigators and DEA agents and people, uh, it uh, it's it it actually stained the 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 memory of a, of a really good man, Enrique Enrique Camarena. And, and when the last start came out, you were. You'd been long since retired, right? Oh, it, that was like thirty-five years before. <laughs> yes. So, um, you know, was how did it dredge up a lot of? I, I would imagine it dredged up a lot of emotion. Yeah, of course it did. During during the ensu- ensuing thirty-five years, thirty-seven years, it would be now since uh, Kiki Cabanero was uh, abducted. About the only thing I've done is is uh, talk to uh, high school groups and people like that that are associated with the Red Ribbon campaign, and and then I uh, got into a a few little documentaries. All of them were, uh, had to do with Kiki's uh, uh, life and uh, job and abduction. Uh, I, I uh, 
by that by the time that this uh, thing aired, I was uh, I don't know eighty years old, eighty two years old. I was uh, just kind of sitting back and right off into the sunset, and uh, I felt like that uh, put his memories to to rest and to sleep, and uh, so his memory could rest in peace. Let me ask you a couple of questions, and I don't want to. Uh, we're not going to delve too specifically into the last narc, at least, and, and the allegations in there. Um, at least not at the beginning. And and um, people who've listened to this podcast know I've I've spent episodes talking about things that I thought were wrong in the last narc. But I'd like to just talk about a couple of of the central allegations there. We can deal with those, and then maybe move on. Um, but, you know, the so-called Guadalajara narcotics cartel, and I think we both agree that um, prior to Camarena's abduction, that was a term that was never used. But there's there's three prominent traffickers, um, Rafael Caro Quintero, Miguel Angel Felix Gardo, and Ernesto Fonseca. Had you, prior to... Agent Camarena's abduction. Had you met any of those men, any of those traffickers? Well, for for one thing, I'm not sure what you mean by meet, because to meet somebody, in my estimation, means you get introduced to them. And I was never introduced to any of them. I never saw any of them. I was never in the presence of any of them, as, to the best of my knowledge, with the exception of Rafael Caro. And I was present at two interrogations uh, by the Mexican Federal Judicial Police where they interrogated that man. Uh, in, in neither occasion did we exchange words. He did look at me one time, uh, pretty sinister, uh, gave, gave me a pretty sinister look. The other two I never saw, or to the best of my imagination, the best of my knowledge was ever in the presence of the other two people, I do not know why anybody would uh, make up something like that. And the Caro Quintero um, interrogations, those were post-Agent Camarena's abduction, right? Uh, that was when he was brought back from Costa Rica by the Mexican Federal Judicial Police. He was interrogated by Comandante Florentino Ventura uh, on the first occasion. And then on the second occasion when I saw him being interrogated, uh, there were other MFJP agents doing that interrogation. I did not did not have words with him on either occasion. Okay. Um, and, and, of course, there's the allegation, um, and, and some could say it's a thinly veiled allegation, but there's the allegation in the last NARC that you – took money from the traffickers, and I think primarily from either Caro Quintero or Fonseca. But can you just address the allegation that you took any money from the traffickers? Absolutely not. It's a, it's a, a blatant lie if anyone says that I did. And uh, there's absolutely no supporting, nothing to support that allegation from anyone, uh, of course not. I wouldn't do something like that. I didn't do anything like that. It's just, uh, 
it's a, it is demeaning to to think that I would do something like that. It, it makes me almost sick to my stomach that 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 anyone would believe an idiot like the 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 witness that made that uh, statement. And then one last thing on the last arc, and then we'll we'll kind of talk about some some of the facts of the case and uh, and things. Um, you know, the big allegation, uh, in addition to the one against you, but the big allegation in the last narc was that the CIA was directly involved in or responsible for Agent Camarena's abduction, his torture, and, and his um, his death. I just want to ask you, either from your time uh, in the DEA, your time investigating the the abduction, or any time since then, have you seen any evidence that leads you to believe that the CIA was involved in your friend's abduction? Absolutely not. I have never seen a single piece of paper. I've never heard anything that that, uh, that alleges anything that that, that supports that. And of course, during my, during this period of time that I was in Guadalajara, and, and up until I left there in September of 1985, we had never heard anything. There is no report. There is no DEA six. There is nothing to support that allegation. Okay, let's leave the last narc and those allegations behind. And I'd like to. I I, I think. The the people who've um, listened to the podcast, people who are interested in this case, I think it would be good to give kind of a background and start from the beginning of how it is that you came to go to Guadalajara and kind of what, you know, your meeting of Kiki at that time. And, and I apologize if, if, um, if I, sh- I, by using his name Kiki, I don't mean any disrespect um, but just talk about, you know, you arriving in Guadalajara, what the relationship was like, what the office was like, and just give us a little bit of context. I was stationed in Houston, Texas as a, an enforcement group supervisor. I'd been there about a year and a half. Uh, I had come from, uh, Quito, Ecuador, where I had just finished a six and a half year tour. And I had a total of about 25 years as a law enforcement officer. Half of that time was, uh, uh, well, I had been a DEA since, since it was created, July the 1st, 1973. Uh, I requested the transfer to Guadalajara. I wanted to go because uh, what I did for a living, and uh, I like to hunt elephants. Guadalajara was full of elephants. And when I say that, I mean major drug traffickers. Uh, I took my family with me. We moved to Guadalajara, and uh, I knew that uh, the previous uh, agent in charge had not been, uh, had not really (laughs) been been, uh, well received by neither the agents in the office nor the administration. In, in Mexico City. So when I got there, uh, there were only three 
other agents in the office, and one of them had just, had just recently uh, been transferred to Mexico City, and the first guy that I met was Peter Hernandez, and I had known Pete previously when he was a Texas uh, narcotics officer, and I had uh, and I had met him, and uh, then the second agent I met was a young man named Kiki Cabrera, who had been there about a year and a half, I guess. And the third agent was the one who had just transferred from Mexico City, Butch Sears. He was the uh, person in charge of something called Operation Broker, which was a Mexico City operation, but the major uh, target of that, of that uh, operation was Miguel Felix. And that, that was, which was the agent in charge of that thing. And uh, that's pretty much the way things stayed until about six months later, we got a, a, another person arrived named Roger Knapp. And he came from, uh, from Guatemala, I think. So that Anyway, the the everybody in the office had uh, fifteen to twenty five years of experience, so they were all seasoned and very competent and uh, very didn't need a lot of supervision. And most of the time, I was most of the time they were straightening me out. So we uh, we I went about learning learning from them about what to. What was going on in the in the place, and from them learned who was the who were the major traffickers in the area. What was uh, the trafficking situation? Uh, I also learned uh, what their working relationship was with the local Mexican Federal Judicial Police. Things like that, just uh, getting my feet on the ground. Uh, prior to going to, to Guadalajara, had you known uh, Agent Camarena? No, I had not. That was not no, I had not. I, uh, I believe I had heard his name someplace. He was a... No, no, I, 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 I did not know him. It, it, everything I've read indicates um, that... Over the course of time of being there, uh, you know, from your arrival until his abduction, you and and uh, Agent Camarena became pretty good friends. Would that would that be accurate? Well, that's very accurate, and uh, we became very good friends because he liked to work and I liked to work. That was one of the reasons. And then uh, the the remember the the uh, personnel in the office kept changing, which just transferred out. Uh, we had another agent come in named Harvey Varenhorst, and he transferred out. Peter Nandes uh, left after almost five years there. He left. Uh, Shaggy Wallace arrived in the summer of 1984, latter part of the, of the year, latter part of the summer. He had a school-age uh, daughter, and he uh, was gone for about a month, so that that uh, also led to uh, a little more 
time spent together with with Kiki working together, and uh, yeah, we were very good, very good friends, very good friends. Uh, because it was a small office, uh, you know what? At, at most, you had besides yourself like four agents at a time. At most, uh, it, I wouldn't say we were ever any more than four. The office, the the strength of the office was six, but we actually only had six agents uh, in, in in country there maybe two or three months, and then okay. Pete left, and then. We had five, and then uh, Butch left, and we had four, and that's the way it was. And then we had two agents who were supposed to come in to replace. So we did get one. Alan Vachelier transferred in, and he was uh, destined, I think, destined to be a really good agent. Had uh, things had had uh, the abduction not happened, we had two other agents who were who were going to come in to help fill the vacancies and. After Rogers Nat Carr got machine gunned in front of his house, they changed their minds. So uh, I'm sure they had uh, real legitimate reasons. But we never had more than four people, really, in the office at any one time. Any four agents. We always we also had the uh, the support personnel, which we could not have done without. Uh, given the the size of of the office, uh, your friendship with Agent Camarena, and and as you said, kind of the the stability of of you two being there, what was what was the degree of collaboration? You know, did in addition to being the supervisor, did you guys talk about the investigations? You know, how much would one of the agents? Uh, you know, do stuff on their own without telling people. Just it, it, help us understand how that how that relationship worked. Well, it was a small office, physically, and uh, with with a number of people in the office. So, uh, if we had uh, we had a, we had a, a number of informants, but they were not. Uh, Isolated from the other agents. I mean, any, everybody knew who the other, who the informants were, and who they worked for, and 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 quite often uh, would uh, would uh, would accompany the the agent who was handling the the handling the informant to meet the other informant, which which by the way is what you're supposed to be doing anyway. So uh, there were no secrets, and uh, since you're Involved in an, in an intelligence gathering operation, anything else you need you need to talk to, you need to talk with everybody in the office to get their opinion to, to see what they might know about the, whoever you're personally investigating or interested in, and uh, all of the reports had to come through me, so, so I had to sign off on them. Uh, Quite often, one of the other agents, not quite often, but once in a while, one of the other agents would become the acting agent in charge, and he would then sign off on the on, on everything. And everything had to be typed because the agents didn't have typewriters, so they couldn't type anything, and most of them didn't know how to type. And so everything had to be typed by one of the secretaries. Uh, there, there were no secrets. There were no secrets, and, and uh, everyone liked each other so 
we we uh, often got together, and uh, we we enjoyed each other's company really. When uh, I want to talk about your investigation of the traffickers again, kind of in those years leading up to the abduction, it was one of the um, well, a, a, a couple things. The relationship that the um, the DEA has with the Mexican police, with the DFS, and stuff. Um, you had some some unique restrictions on what you could or couldn't do at that time, right? We had restrictions, not in not anywhere near as, as strict as they are today. But uh, <clears throat> we we were not supposed to be doing aerial reconnaissance on our own. Uh, we couldn't carry weapons. Uh. Really and truly, those are those are the only things. And 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 and, and as I, as I said earlier, we were all veterans. We had all dealt with the Mexicans in the past and knew that we, that they were not uh, people you put a lot of confidence in. And so we were careful what we we were careful the way we did deal deal with them. Yes, and, and you weren't allowed to arrest people, right? So so you am I correct that that the DEA's role at that time was really to find information and then to pass it on to the Mexican police. Uh, that is correct. That is correct. That 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 was that that was the extent of our of our duties, and uh, the that that was what I believed that we which should, should be doing anyway, and that was uh, gathering. Intelligence, which we would provide to our bosses, who would in turn give the headquarters that information, who would pass it on to the administration, who would then uh, go to the Mexican government to try to get them to do something about the drug traffic, and uh, and in and in 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 pursuing that, there's an old saying when you refer to informants to trust but verify. So we had the informants that we that we trusted to a certain extent, but we verified anything and everything they told us, which is quite different from what happened during that so-called documentary. So that meant that we had to go out on occasion and uh, help to, and, and and give the information, give the information to the drug tra- to the Mexican Federal Judicial Police. And aid them in uh, affecting arrests or some enforcement action to to if nothing else to prove to us that the informants were telling the truth a little while ago, you said that one of the reasons you went to Guadalajara is that uh, you know you like to hunt elephants and there were elephants there. Tell me if you would about the um the the state of the uh, the traffickers and and the drug traffic, especially out of Guadalajara, like when you first got there, uh, who the players were and 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 what the what the process was of identifying and, and going after the elephants as you referred to them. The 
major trafficker that that DEA knew about at the time that I arrived was Miguel Felix and the old trafficker Ernesto Fonseca. We did not know of uh, Rafael Caro. In fact, it was uh, not until 1984 that that we actually identified him because he had two paternal uncles that nicknamed El Chapo Caro and El, El Charel, who everyone thought was actually, or everyone had confused with Rafael Caro. Uh, they were, they were and are major drug traffickers. They've been at it a long time. They were, they were the brothers of his uh, de- de- deceased father. And it wasn't until 1984 that we actually. Uh, that we positively identified a young man uh, named Rafael Caro. Uh, the traffickers had the free reign of the city. They they were associated. Uh, the, the 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 governor of the state was was really associated with the traffickers in the ownership of a, one of a nightclub. They were all. Um, everyone was carrying DFS credentials or IPS credentials or state judicial police credentials. All of the traffickers were, so they they operated with impunity in the in the in 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 the whole state of Jalisco. They had most of the traffickers, well, the major traffickers were from Sinaloa. They had all transferred. They'd all moved up there because it was a nice place to live and. They could do what they wanted to, as long as they, as long as they paid enough money to the corrupt local officials. The major houses of prostitution were run by, were owned by a, a woman whose nickname was Acomanche. Her her number one, her number one uh, henchman was married. He was a he was a trafficker, and he was married to one of her daughters. Uh, at the so one of the the um, the mythologies I I'll say surrounding this case is the idea that um, Caro Quintero. Rafa was, you know, one of the first ones to identify the ability to go out into the desert and grow huge marijuana fields. Um, and somehow there's this perception, I think, uh, that, you know, pre, pre-abduction of, of Camarena. So let's say, you know, 83, 84, particularly 84, that, you know, he was the lone major trafficker in that area, especially for, for marijuana. How much does that kind of comport with reality? He's, he is, Rafael Caro is, is, is the, was created by the press, by the media, because what he looked like, uh, uh, his, 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 uh,
when when he he kidnapped a young woman and he made the news, then he's this young guy that uh, looks like a football player or something. He's tall, well built. He fled the he fled the he fled the country in an airplane, and, and so they made a romantic figure out of him. Gave him more credit for things than uh, than he than he had uh, actually done. He was not the major trafficker. He was up and coming, and he had, uh, I guess, discovered that. No, it, I, can't, I can't say that he discovered how to grow large plantations in the desert because the initial one that we found uh, was he was only a partial part owner. So they, like I say, he's he, he's the He's the invention of the press, mostly. And again, as I mentioned earlier, am I right that um, you and the DEA, the people you worked with, kind of leading up to the abduction, the term Guadalajara not narcotics cartel was not something that you that you used or heard or wrote or anything like that. No, we did not. It was. Okay. There. If we referred to them at all, it was the La Familia, the family. And even then, we probably didn't include Rafael Caro. That was, that was all of the traffickers from Sinaloa. They were, they were, we just, we, we collectively called them the, the La Familia. Uh, during this time, like, like I said, let's say 83, 84, um, there was much more awareness of, Felix Gallardo and his involvement uh, in in trafficking, right? Yes, right. He was he was the subject of Operation Broker, and he eventually became became the major subject of Operation Padrino. Now the old the old man Ernesto Fonseca is Rafael Caro's uncle, for one thing. He was uh, he was married to Rafael Caro's aunt and divorced her, but uh, they're all from Sinaloa. Miguel Felix is from Sinaloa. He, like I say, he became the the major subject in Operation Padrino, which was which was investigation into the transportation of cocaine from. South America, Colombia, principally into Mexico, and into the and, and from there into the United States. I'm glad you brought, brought up Operation Padrino because I I, I want to ask a couple questions about that. Um, I think you said that that um, Operation Broker, which was kind of the predecessor to Operation Padrino, that. Um, Butch Sears was the kind of the agent in charge of that or responsible agent or however you properly refer to that? Right. He was the lead agent in Operation Broker uh, when I arrived there. And uh, what the, what and it was a Mexico City initiative, but we were uh, the ones doing all the work because not, not naturally the, the, the major subject of the investigation, Miguel Felix, lived in Guadalajara. But what they had done 
with that thing is they had they had uh, sort of lumped all of the major traffickers in the city or in, in the area into Operation Broker. So that left the other agents with nothing to, I shouldn't say nothing or no one to investigate, but it, it sort of throws them out of, of, of working, taking credit for anything involving the other major traffickers. So broker wasn't wasn't that wasn't well thought of, thought up, created. So then, how did how did broker go into Padrino, or how did how did Operation Padrino start, and how was it different than broker? Padrino again was a Mexico City initiative, and and uh, it actually started in Mexico City. With the idea that the, that the major trafficker was in Mexico City, because the Spanish narcotics police investigators had a wiretap operation and a, and a narcotics investigation into a guy who was the Mercedes Benz dealer in Madrid. Uh, I think it's. I'm not sure. I don't remember exactly what name he was using, but he was, in fact, a Honduran drug trafficker named Juan Mata. Uh, he was using a, 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 phony, a phony name, living in Madrid. He had a, he had the Mercedes-Benz dealers, dealership, and he was making telephone calls to Colombia and to Mexico to two different, uh, two different phone numbers in Mexico. One of them in Mexico City, and one of them at a small ranch outside of Veracruz. And so Mexico City opened Operation Padrino, and that was the the target of the of the investigation. In the beginning was the person in Mexico City who was receiving the telephone calls. But then the trafficker, the major trafficker in uh, Madrid began to call Miguel Felix in Guadalajara. And that's when the investigation moved to Guadalajara. And that's when we became involved. That makes sense. Okay. A couple of questions about Padrino, if 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 you don't mind. Um when it was created, was Agent Camarena involved in the you know, the creation of Operation Padrino. No, 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 he wasn't, in, he wasn't, uh, I don't think he was even at the initial meeting whenever the Mexico City agents flew up and uh, along with a couple of people from the MFJP, higher level people, uh, I don't think he was actually involved in, actually present at the initial meeting. It was probably myself and Butch Sears and uh, uh, Miguel Acuna. He was the DEA agent in charge of Mexico City and uh, the MFJP. And it was decided during the initial one or two meetings that the uh, MFJP would uh, conduct wiretap investigate would conduct wiretap surveillance on Miguel Felix's. Uh, home and 
one of his hotel's offices, and they were they the Mexican police were going to use uh, cadets from the academy because they didn't think they would have, would be compromised, and in fact that's what that's what took place. Was there when Operation Padrino started? Was there an agent in the Guadalajara office who was the lead investigator on that? Yes, it was. It was Butch Sears, and in the beginning, I, what uh, it was very difficult for us to try to do surveillance <laughs> in in uh, in that in that city. There weren't very really many of us, and there were a lot of bad bad guys. So it was it was very difficult to try to do surveillance. So, so in the beginning, what we mostly did was just pick up the transcribed recordings and uh, send them to Mexico City, and they they in turn would give them to the uh, to the Mexican police for transcription and whatever whatever else they were going to do with them. But we did we did we did listen to some of the tapes, and we did. The agent that would go by and pick up the tapes, he would talk to the to the listeners, and they would tell him uh, interesting things that they might have heard. But we didn't do very much more than that. I would say for the first couple of months. Um, after Butch Sears left Guadalajara, did somebody else take over as the lead investigator or the lead agent on Operation Padrino? Yes, Roger now. Okay. At, at any time, was Agent Camarena the lead agent on Operation Padrino? No, but I guess uh, it would have been, <laughs> maybe, if he hadn't been leaving. No, no, he, he, it would have been. It would have, he, he, uh, uh, agent Knapp left right after his car got machine gunned, so... We hadn't gotten to the point yet of of, of of assigning someone else. Besides, the wiretap operation had ceased. Okay. To the best of your knowledge, were um, were funds, assets, you know, money, bank accounts of Rafael Caro Quintero seized as part at any time as part of um, Operation Padrino. No. Uh, did your office, any agent in your office in connection with Operation Padrino, seize assets of Felix Gallardo? Did we personally? I mean, did the office seize them? Yeah. No, no, no. Okay. They, um, we, 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 we provided information to the United States, to agents of the United States that led well, we didn't. We didn't. <laughs> okay. So if if somebody had said that Agent Camarena himself was responsible for the seizure of assets of either Felix Gallardo or um, Rafael Caro Quintero, would that just be an incorrect statement? The office provided information to... Uh, DEA agents in the United States that led to some seizures of money 
and identification of bank accounts and things like that, but it was the office that did it. You know, I mean, who actually made the phone? Who made the phone call? Uh, I think I phone called. I think I made one phone call. I'm not sure who made the other phone call. And then we sent cables, but they were they were they were they were sent by the office. Got it. Uh, I want to ask you a couple questions about the marijuana investigations. Um, and it, it seems that the Guadalajara office became pretty successful at finding marijuana fields um, that were run by Caro Quintero or owned by Caro Quintero and some others, and that you were doing some aerial surveillance that was um, helpful in that in, in those investigations. Is that right? Yes. And and can you just kind of explain how how those marijuana field investigations took place in your office? With informants. The since since we were looking at, at cultivations for the most part, ongoing cultivations, uh, and not at at uh, seizures of 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 money, one of that had already been harvested, we had, uh, we used informants, and uh, two separate informants were the were the major contributors of that information, although we did get a little bit of information from other people, mostly informants, sometimes uh, interested citizens that, that, uh, that would Help to corroborate it, but but mostly it was the work of a of an individual informant in each <clears throat> in each in each instance. Uh, how many how many marijuana fields did um, did your office, the Guadalajara office, um, kind of? discover or uncover or find in that 1984-ish period? In 1984, only. Well, no, anything kind of leading up to, uh, uh, leading up to 85, so 83, 84, 82, 83, 84, just in that kind of, everything leading up to the, the time period of the abduction. Well, uh, the the biggest the big plantation in nineteen eighty two was was a plantation a lot of fields. It was, it was about two hundred and twenty acres, and then in eighty three, we provided information to to the Mexicans that led to a seizure that we did not accompany them on. But uh, we were pretty certain that they that they seized a, a couple of large fields in Zacatecas. We were not there when the seizure took place. Uh, in eighty four, we provided information that led to 
the discovery of a lot of fields in the in the uh, desert in Zacatecas, and we provided information that led to identification of a lot of fields along the Rio Yaqui in in the state of Sonora. I really can't remember anything else. I, mean, I can't enumerate anything else. Sure. And um, I want to ask you about the the most famous of the, of the raids, um, which would be the raid in Buffalo in November or so of 84, and, and ask what was, the, what was your office's involvement in that operation? We were not involved in it. We actually didn't even know it was taking place until the, the day that they, that they raided it. Um, I, I'm sure you've seen some media um, that has you know, placed Agent Camarena as like sneaking into Buffalo um, or otherwise being directly involved in the investigation. And I'm, I'm, Assuming from what you just said that those characterizations are, we'll call them dr- dramatic license, but not not based in in how things actually worked. No, they were definitely dramatic license. We had we had we were not involved in that uh, in that operation at all. Zero. None of the agents had anything to do with it. None of the agents went. As I say, we didn't even know what was happening until the, until it had already taken place. Agent Kirkendall, we have now been talking for about 45 minutes or so, and we haven't yet got to the uh, the abduction and the investigation surrounding Agent Camarena, which I think um, w- will warrant um, some time and some some in-depth discussion. So I'm going to suggest that we uh, we take our our talk here into two episodes and we conclude our first episode here and come back for a subsequent one next week where we can talk about um, the abduction in the investigation and some about the trials and things that have happened in the last few years, if that's okay with you. I think that would be fine, sir. I do appreciate the opportunity to be here and, uh, Try to clear up some of the the uh, mis- misconceptions and falsifications that have come to pass, and hopefully between now and then that uh, Amazon Studios will see the error of their ways and, and remove that production. Well, I appreciate it. I know people. Um, it- I'm speaking for myself, but I'm assuming that many others who have listened to this, that you know, the the depth of understanding of the way things worked um, just by listening to you is is wonderful. Um, and I'm going to put out to to anybody listening, if you have questions that you want to ask of Agent Kirkendall in the next episode, email them to me. Uh, you know, you can get it on my website uh, or uh, my my. Um, email address is LlewellynWriting at Gmail. Welcome any comments, questions, etc. And so we will conclude this. And now with, again, another thank you to 
Agent Kirkendall, and we will see you next week with episode two of our talk with him. Thank you very much, everybody. Have a good week.